once again. Thank you all for coming and welcome to the LSE. My name is Ruth Kattamuri. I'm the co-director of the India Observatory at the London School of Economics. Um, we're delighted that our Minister for Commerce and Industry kindly managed to fit this talk at the LSE in the midst of his very busy schedule. As we are all aware, it has been established that most women and a few men are good at multitasking. I admire Sri Suresh Prabhu as being among few such men. We have often seen him effectively dealing with three meetings simultaneously. He is brilliant intellectually, he's extremely capable, and above all, sincerely committed to the welfare of the people of India and the country's development. Thank you, Minister, for coming to the LSE today. The audience today comprises of um, LSE students and other students, public and private sector officials, and the Indian diaspora. I would also like to note that women professionals in India are thriving in the Ministry of Commerce and Industry. I have met several such women at the center as well as in the states. Also, all three officials who have come from India to participate in the India-UK Joint Economic and Trade Committee meetings here this week are women. I would like to also welcome the High Commissioner, Mr. Sinha, for participating in this event. I thank the Deputy High Commissioner, Mr. Dinesh Patnaik, and the team from the Economic Wing of the Indian High Commission for all their help and support in organizing this, this event. I now hand you over to Professor Nicholas Stern to chair this talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you very much. Um, thank you all for coming. And uh, thank you, um, Minister Suresh Prabhu and High Commissioner Y.K. Sinha. I will introduce you in just a moment, but we're absolutely delighted that you are uh, with us. Um, my name is Nick Stern. I'm the IG Patel, a Professor of Economics and Government at the LSE. And in this Indian context, I'm delighted to say that my chair is supported, has been supported, by uh, the Reserve Bank of India, um, the State Bank of India, SBI, and Yes Bank. Um, the relationship between LSE and India is long and deep and vitally important. I'm not going to rehearse the whole thing. I'll just give you one or two highlights. Um, it's as old, almost as old as the LSE itself. In, in 1912... Um, Saratan Tata gave us a major grant to develop applied social studies and we've maintained that close relationship and do maintain currently that close relationship with Tata's. The uh, just three distinguished Indians who have spent some time here, Dr. Ambedkar, widely seen as the, the father of the Indian constitution, uh, did his PhD, or did one of his PhDs at the, uh, at the LSE. Kear Narayanan, who became president of India, did uh, a BSc in government here. And of course, Dr. I.G. Patel, after whom, after whom my, name, my chair is named, was the director of the London School of Economics, one of our most distinguished directors, if I may say so. This is unrelated to what I just said, but he hired me in, uh, in, 
in, 19, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, so I have, uh, he, he was already an uncle figure in many ways to so many of us uh, younger generation uh, economists. Now those are three enormously distinguished names um, of Indians who've been deeply associated with the LSE. I could go on, but uh, I hope that those three are enough to show just how powerful and important that uh, relationship is. Now, our chief guest today is uh, Minister Suresh Prabhu. He's the, uh, currently the Minister of Commerce and Industry, and he spent three years uh, as uh, the Railways Minister. Now, I don't have to tell you how important there's maybe some of you who don't know so much about India, how important those two ministries are in the whole uh, story of Indian governance. And I think it's fair to say, and I'm not the only one, and I could give you quotes, that uh, Suresh Prabhu has been an absolutely outstanding minister. He's enormously uh, respected for his thoughtfulness and analysis, for his integrity, and, you can't say this of all ministers, his ability to get things done. And uh, that's why he is seen uh, in such a uh, strong light, such a respectful light in India and amongst all of us who have been working closely on India, in my case, for more than 40 years. So it's wonderful to have you, if I may call you as I normally do, I know it's a slightly formal occasion, but Suresh, it's just wonderful to uh, have, you, have you with us. And I wanted to pay tribute also to my own interactions with you. We've been talking about Indian growth with a strong perspective of sustainability and climate. But Indian growth from the perspective of sustainability and climate, Indian poverty reduction from the point of view of sustainability and climate, for a long time now. And I've learned enormously from those interactions, and I've been deeply grateful for them. And we also have uh, with us on stage um, uh, Mr. Y.K. Sinha, who's the... Uh, Indian High Commissioner here with his High Commission just across the road, another underlining of the close relationship between uh, India and the uh, LSE. And uh, he has been a diplomat for more than 35 years. Uh, strong focuses... Well, it's been sufficiently long, sir, that your career has covered you know, United Nations and Europe, but also intensely those countries' local uh, to India, Sri Lanka and Pakistan, Afghanistan and so on, um, but, but also um, in the Middle East. And he puts many of our ambassadors to shame by his ability to speak uh, many languages, including Arabic, which you can't say of all the British uh, um, diplomats. But, uh, sir, it's wonderful to have you with us, and I hope we will have a chance during the conversation to benefit from your insights uh, also. So it's now for me to uh, turn over to... Uh, uh, Minister Suresh Prabhu. He will talk for half an hour or so, and then I hope, um, you know, plus or minus, it, whatever it is, and um, we will then have chance, I hope, for interactions and discussions. So thank you again, all of you, uh, for coming, and it's my uh, great honour, and uh, both from the LSE, but also personally, to introduce uh, Minister Suresh Prabhu. So my very dear and respected friend, Lord Nicholas Tun, our High Commissioner who represents only 1.3 billion people here, 
and all my distinguished friends. I don't know of any person who wouldn't have aspired for being a student of LSE. I don't know anyone. So I did also aspire, but I'm sure if I'd applied for an admission, he wouldn't admit me as a student. So I thought the next best thing to happen is to be a minister so I'll get invited. <laughs> so I'm very happy and very honored by the fact that I'm able to be here and talk to you on a very interesting topic. of role of trade and investment in driving sustainable and inclusive growth. This is an accepted fact, not a new development, new phenomena. That to promote growth, we need both trade and investment. In fact, the investment is a function which facilitates output, which actually results into growth. And even if you create output and there is no trade linkage, how do you actually bring in the growth or the economic benefit of that activity? So it has been accepted for a long time ago, and it has been something which we are trying to do globally, is to promote both trade and investment. And the investment lying idle is a cost. If you don't make investments and just keep cash in the bank, you're actually suffering. Even though for the banks, deposit is a cost, and investment is a source of income. So therefore, unless you actually make investment, you not get it. So this is something which is known. In the last few decades, we have seen something which is truly unprecedented. The global economy's growth was truly phenomenal. And in fact, when there was a time when People's concern was poverty, and people said at a time of global, the Millennium Development Goals, that we must remove poverty, make poverty by half. People wanting how? Can the money be brought out and printed more so that we can give more money to the people so that they can come out of poverty? And then we have seen an incredible development wherein the huge economic expansion that happened almost till 2008, has resulted into a phenomenal diminishing in the numbers of poverty. Of course, China contributed the most, India also contributed significantly, and a poor have come out of poverty in a big way. It's no coincidence that that's a period in which the global trade also expanded quite a bit. Is again not just a chance that investments happen more through the cross-border transactions. So there is definitely a linkage between trade and investment and removal of poverty. That's an economic should be the objective of economic development. But despite that, it has happened. Still, we are facing a lot of challenges. The reduction in poverty does not mean absence of poverty. The diminishing number does not mean we are removed it completely. 
and therefore those challenges still continue to remain. Poverty is still an important issue and in some countries more than others and in a way the definition of poverty changes because in the US people will say they are large number of poor. But the profile of poverty changes from country to country and if you even take the global parameters by which you can judge it, still we have a lot of work to be done. And therefore, if we have accepted a fact that trade and investment promotes economic growth which results into reduction of poverty, what it really means is we should do more. We should try to promote more trade, we should try to bring in more investments which will result into something which we aspire to do. And where, is, where are we going? Where are we heading? As I said, trade is something which was there all the time, even ancient times. In fact, the civilizational contacts happened because of trade. People started moving from one place to another to promote business. And therefore, trade has been there all the time. So it's not a new phenomenon that cross-border trade is happening now. It was happening. But then we discovered that if we have some efficient mechanism of promoting global trade, it would help. And I think I must really thank the collective wisdom of the global community that I came out with an idea of GATT, Global Agreement on Trade and Tariff. That was a good development. It worked. But then we realized the limitation of that approach. We realized that we can grow so much but not beyond. And there are so many issues which keep coming up which cannot be resolved unless we have a structure which is different than that. And therefore, we agreed to create an organization, a structure called World Trade Organization, which as you call, recall how the time changes. If I'm not wrong, because speaking in front of my great friend, Lord Nicholas Stern, as well as such a distinguished people, I'm just taking my neck out. But if I'm not wrong, I think Mr. Dunkel came out with the proposal as to how we should create that organization. And I remember there may not be a single country where it was not opposed. People said, oh, what a disaster for going to happen, the recipe for complete dooms. And that then created an organization. And now we have seen that a benefit of this global trade expansion which we are enjoying today happened largely also because of WTO. And one of the essential characteristics of WTO is, interestingly, democratic, rule-based, transparent, and something more unique is that no decision can be taken unless there is a consensus. So in United Nations, we have to create a security council with people having veto that some countries have a right to veto anything and that's how the world order has now been functioning for some time which is of course under a lot of scrutiny. People want to change it so that it embraces the reality of today but that's how the veto system works. Interestingly, in WTO every country has a veto virtually. You can decide even the smallest country can say no I don't agree with this. And then it doesn't go through. And that's what it happened in Buenos Aires. At the end of the day, the ministerial declaration didn't happen because some countries said, no, we don't want it. Then that's, that's, that's it. We can't have it. But that's a 
other part. But a unique characteristic of WTO is also that everybody has a say and everybody is as strong as the member of the Security Council. So in that sense, they can actually decide. So WTO has worked pretty well in the course of last few years and has resulted into this expansion of trade which I just mentioned. And this is unprecedented. In the world economic history, there has never been an economic expansion of this magnitude in such a short time as we witnessed in the last say, 20 years before this real slowdown started happening. So now, anybody will say logically, as we said earlier, that we must expand global trade because that has benefited. So we will also say that we must then promote the institution. I must tell you, from my personal experience, though I am very few months old in this ministry, that WTO offers us the best choice to take the possibility of expansion of global trade in, and in the process, bringing in more economic prosperity to people at large, removing poverty and addressing so many issues. Some countries have questioned the WTO itself. They said, for all the problems that are facing in the world, WTO is responsible. In fact, this is always very easy because we need a weeping boy, so we identify somebody and say, you are responsible. So he said, but how come I have no, no role to play? I am a neutral organization, but still could do that. But in my opinion, we need to make sure that this organization needs to be promoted, protected, and taken forward. But to do that, it doesn't mean that we need the same structure, same attitude. We can, of course, definitely revisit each and every aspect of WTO to make it better, efficient, more transparent, and more effective. I remember that there were very large economies, very strong geopolitical powers, but they also failed after some time because they didn't succeed in reinventing themselves. They remained dogmatic and they didn't change with the changing times and they felt that what they have been doing because it has been good, let them continue doing that. And that was the reason for the downfall. So obviously, even WTO should not fall into that trap and anything good needs to be done to WTO to make it better should happen. But that means that why we are trying to do it better? Because we realize the importance of WTO as an instrument of bringing change. And therefore, have to. you must accept that as a reality. So, in that context, I would say that now we have an instrument and possibilities, and we must try to work on that. Some of the issues which are thrown up in this global trade, though I talked about some of the very good achievements that we achieved, there are certain issues which have remained as well. The important question that we must answer is, what is the ultimate goal of global trade? What is the ultimate goal of an economic activity? The outcome of economic activity, of expansion of global trade, must be to bring in development. So development must be at the heart of global trade as well. And if we don't have development, and if we don't address the issues related to development, 
which are maybe social in nature, which may be humanitarian in nature, then you actually are not achieving the real objective of economic activity and global trade as well. And therefore, we agreed with that and we decided to work on this agenda in Doha, which is called and so-called, rightly so-called, the development round. But we didn't realize that time that development round is coined in that particular way so that we can go round and round and round without any development taking place. So we didn't realize this name is coined because of that. And now, after having gone round and round, obviously somebody will get bored because how can you just do merry-go-round all the time? So people say, now let's do it. We have done enough of rounds. Now dump it. You should forget it. So the development of the development round is that we did round and round and now we should dump development itself. That is something which is a recipe for disaster because there are countries in which despite the economic growth that I talked about, many countries and most of the countries within the countries despite they having very high per capita income, there is so much of income disparity. In fact, this is the first time that income disparities are increased in the world of a nature and a magnitude, which is again unparalleled. So as the economic expansion happened, which is unparalleled, the disparities also increase, which again is unprecedented. And therefore, if we don't address development as an issue, we'll actually be alienating large number of people. Because we should not look at people as commodities, people as just sub players into the whole game, but whole idea should be that development is for the people and the growth, economic activity, global trade, all must aim at promoting human development. And therefore, Doha round, which is something which now people find it very difficult to accept. Oh, what are you talking about? Doha round, so many times you have talked about it. So I said, that's the problem, that we only talked about it. When we agreed, that this is the agenda, we should just not talk about it, we do it. And another issue, just as a parallel I'm thinking about, which Lord Nicholson has really articulated it so well, is the issue of climate change. In climate change, again, same thing was happening, that we are talking about climate change. As if this is an academic issue, needs to be discussed once in a while, when we have little time, I think, this is now 4.30, so 5 to 5.30 every day we'll discuss climate change. So we are happy. We have gone to a place, worship place, so that we do prayers at a particular time, and the rest of the day we can do as much as we want. So if you have done something wrong, doing everything, the next day, of course, we have time. During the prayer time, we'll, we'll try to rectify it. So climate change, nothing was happening till Dr. Stern came out with a report saying that action is needed today the more we postpone it, more the cost, and therefore then after some time it will not be even possible to do anything. So even on global trade, I would feel that development round is something, Doha agenda is something which should be at the heart of global trade and negotiations. And nobody's argument that we should not expand global trade. In fact, this is again I strongly believe that the idea is not to reduce the quantity of trade. There are some, sometimes it happens. I remember nowadays there is a growing talk of some countries saying that I am suffering because I am running a trade deficit with you. I said, okay, the best way to reduce trade deficit is to export more. 
That's how the trade deficit will go down. If I said trade deficit is there, so I will not import anything from you. Just imagine, and this is what I keep telling people, that all countries in the world say that only I will export, but I will not import anything from any other country. And this becomes a unanimous agreement that all countries will only export, but not import anything. Then how can we export at all? If everybody says this, so obviously it is accepted fact that global trade has to expand, but expansion of that trade must result into growing and benefit to the development. So that is unfortunately something which has not happened, and we insist that it must happen. Now, as I said, you cannot ignore the realities of life. So at Buenos Aires, when we had a very interesting ministerial meeting, some countries had come already prepared to ensure that outcome is known already even before the beginning of the meeting. So obviously there was no real outcome. But we believe as a country like India, we are not just driven by self-interest alone, but of a larger public interest to say that we must promote WTO. Therefore, we are going to organize a mini-ministerial in India in March. We'll invite all the important countries to participate without excluding anything, because as my good friend has said, the global trade for inclusive growth. So I think inclusiveness is important, so we'll not exclude anybody. We'll try to bring all the countries, important countries, to come and discuss and find out a way forward to take WTO to a new level whereby we can expand the big possibilities of trade. But while I'm saying this, you must understand that trade has so many components. One is the trade in manufactured goods. And I think a lot of work has been done on that front. Other is agriculture. Now we are seeing the agriculture promotion can happen, which will actually be the worst, best way to remove poverty. Because most of the people who are actually poor in developing countries, their sustenance is agriculture. So if you promote agriculture, automatically people will benefit. But there are certain countries in the world who have been historically given such huge subsidies to their farmers for good reason. I'm not blaming them for whatever reason they did, but they are giving subsidies. So if you don't remove the subsidies in their countries, how do you get market access to their agriculture markets? So that has to happen, and that was agreed even in Uruguay round. But that, again, somewhere down the line we said, Uruguay is too far away. I think we should come closer to the place, so we forgot that issue. So that, again, has to be properly revisited. The third component of trade, and that is something, a new emerging sector, and that's services. The potential of services to grow in global trade will be far, far more than either agriculture or even manufacturing. And the potential of services to create jobs will be simply phenomenal. The advantage of services is you cannot even imagine the benefit of it. For example, I'll just give one example. Information technology and technology related to that, whether it's communication technology, ITS, and all of that, the family of that, has resulted into huge improvement into productivity. And the productivity 
is one of the best way to improve economic growth. In fact, I remember, if again I'm not wrong, Alan Greenspan, the former chief of Fed Reserve, once he was asked, well, how do you explain such an unprecedented expansion of U.S. economy, which again was a very great phenomenon. During that particular period, it was expanding rapidly. He said productivity improvement is one of the reasons why it happened, and the productivity improvement happened because of information technology. But information technology, so therefore service sector has a tremendous potential. UK gets, London gets 40 million tourists. That's another service sector. NHS, which is the second or the third employer of the world, 40% of the doctors are from other countries. That is also services, but has helped its services to grow. But I'm saying the services has a tremendous potential, and services will grow even at a rate faster than the goods, the merchandise, or even agriculture. So we must now look at new areas of opening up. So as India, we are given this proposal for opening up and facilitation of services in trade in services. And I think we should try to encourage it. And I'm very happy that when I had a bilateral meeting with the UK minister yesterday, he also endorsed this idea. And therefore, we'll try to build up consensus. But the whole idea is that we should try to promote trade, try to promote more investment. Investments is something, again, a very interesting issue. Because without investment, you'll never get out, output. Of course, the efficiency of investment is equally important. How you work on incremental capital output ratio is a very important. And to do that, but investment per se brings in huge benefits. And investments can be done within your own country, but cross-border investments also has other potential. So I think that, again, needs to be promoted, and we should try to find out a way of doing that. Another very important issue is what you do with the growth itself. As I said, one of the important issues of growth is certainly remove poverty, and that's what I would consider as the inclusive growth. Because inclusive growth will be an important component. The poverty removal will be an important component of inclusive growth anyway. Removing disparity, income disparity, social disparity should be also an important goal and driver. That again should happen. But other important issue is sustainability. I think I just mentioned it earlier. One of the biggest challenges we are all facing today is because of environmental degradation. There are many aspects of it. We dealt with it partially through Montreal Protocol when there was an ozone depletion that was taking place. We dealt with part of it when biodiversity was getting depleted. We came out with a convention on biodiversity. We had a Ramsar Convention to deal with desertification. We are dealing with water-related issues. So any different aspects of environmental issues, we are trying to work through various conventions. But then we realized that there is even a bigger danger, because you are trying to treat the problem of flu, problem of liver damage, that everything, till we realize that cancer is a problem. So cancer is a far bigger disease. So if you have to first deal with that. So in environmental issues, we realize that a bigger issue seems to be the climate change itself. Because climate change is going to destroy biodiversity. Climate change is going to cause problems related to water. Climate change will also result into sea level rise, which will again create so many problems. And we have convention on marine issues. But this could be an important issue. So now it seems that so many environmental issues, the umbrella response could be in the form of dealing with climate change. If you can deal with climate change, you can deal with many aspects of it. 
And as you know, there are two important components of that. One is the mitigation to ensure that we reduce the greenhouse gas emission. And other is adaptation, because even if we reduce greenhouse gas emission today, all, something, LSC comes out with new technology, and we can push the button and bring down it today. Even then, the climate change will be reality because the historical emissions, which are already in the atmosphere, will continue to cause climate change even for years to come. And therefore, if that is a certainty that climate change will continue to happen, then adaptation is a necessity because we have to adapt to climate change. And therefore, we need to work on both at the same time. Both would need resources, and huge resources. As Dr. Stern had pointed out, and he gave a stern warning through his report. But that report, unfortunately, was read and said, very good report. <laughs> and after that, where is that report lying? Nobody knows, till the other disaster visitors. But according to that report, we again need investment. Today's investments may not be as heavier as they would require if you postpone it. But that resource also could come through expansion of global trade and investment. The global trade will bring money, and investment has a direct linkage to inclusive growth as well as the sustainable development. For example, if we direct our investments into the right sources, like renewable energy, like smart transportation, like agriculture, which is going to result into that, can you imagine the benefit that will happen? The new growth will come in, but at the same time, the growth will come in a sector which will actually help to deal with the biggest challenge, the existential threat that humanity and the entire biological life is facing as a result of climate change. So we need both expansion of global trade to bring in resources which can be invested into this, but investment also should be channelized into the right sources, and therefore I feel it's a great opportunity. In my opinion, we have a historical opportunity. If you can change track, bring social issues mainstreamed into economic development. If you get environmental issues in a manner that when you frame economic policies, you'll never forget to bring in the important concept of how environmental management should take place into economic decision-making, you can actually change the entire paradigm of the global economy, global system, people living with each other. Can you imagine one of the challenges of sustainability? In Europe, the governments after governments are facing problems of anti-incumbency. And one of the reasons is the issues coming out of refugees. Can you imagine how many climate refugees will come from into the world? And then what will happen to the entire system of the world? So just imagine the challenge that is we are facing today in terms of climate change related issues is mind-boggling. And therefore we must bring in as a sustainable model of development which will be ensuring that sustainability inclusive growth will be an integral part of the economic activity, and the economic activity cannot be divorced and can be independently thought about without bringing in a concept of global trade we should promote it. I will just end my time because I'm looking at the time. I don't know whether I exceeded my time limit. But I'll just say last thing, in Indian context, we are preparing a complete plan of we need almost, we'll be touching something like $5 trillion of economy 
in the next few years time we are trying to make sure that 40% of that will be driven by global trade and to promote global trade we are looking at new markets new products and we are trying to work on that we are preparing industrial policy in india in which we are trying to think about six new industries which are not even born today which will bring in the new growth of the world and new growth to indian economy as well as to the rest of the world so we are thinking about finding out which are those new sectors new economies which will emerge from that so we are actually trying to align india's economic policy india's industrial policy india's foreign trade policy to something which is needed to be done globally not just integrating into the global market is enough but think about global priorities and try to include those priorities into your national program is as important which is what we should all be doing to ensure that we have a society an economy a system which will be helping as many people as possible will not be discriminatory in nature which will be just so that everybody will get a say as well as a benefit from that system which will be transparent efficient and democratic and to do that i think we really need to rethink where a different thinking cap and think about little bit more than our own immediate concern and interest which will be far more interest which will actually help all countries to benefit and this is what is a message that we already learned from what we have got so far and we need to do more once again thank you very much dr tan for inviting me thank you ruth for also making sure that i participate in this program thank you all for being here and listening to me i'm sure you have some better things to do but being here for that thank you very much minister prabhu thank you so much for a really inspiring uh, talk and you took us right through the whole gamut from trade and investment to what's necessary for sustainable inclusive growth and underlined very powerfully how closely integrated are these activities both in terms of what you have to do to make them happen and then what happens when they do happen and uh, i think it was uh, a great privilege to to be here now uh, we do have um a little over half an hour or so for discussion i'd first uh, like to ask um a high commissioner if there's anything he would like to add or so but i hope you can as you wish to participate in responding to some questions as as they occur so um what i'll do is i'll go back and sit with my friend so that we have the atmosphere of a a discussion but i will look to the audience to ask some questions and then perhaps towards the end of that time the three of us might add one or two additional comments at the end but let's start with the questions um if i may i'd like to take them um three at a time to give as many people as possible the chance to ask questions and if i could um remind um you that the lse is quite rightly sensitive to the gender balance in the questions so uh, please bear that in mind i will bear it in mind in taking the questions but we let's start with a group of three is a lady right at the back there minister thanks for your talk uh, i just wondered in the mini ministerial meeting that you're planning in march uh, how do you plan to push the us to agree to india stand on food security for millions and uh, i mean do you have a way of sort of bringing them around to our point of view so uh, that's one uh, yes we'll take we'll take three or four uh, at a time is gentleman just here you please uh, mohan kaul uh, 
please there's a, a mic. I had the opportunity of um, sitting through all, some of the uh, rounds that you were talking about as a Commonwealth diplomat. But while, during those rounds of talks, uh, India was not really um, propagating trade in services. That was always, and there is a lot of reforms to be done in India in liberalizing services like legals and uh, services and that. So between interest between in India and UK in the services area, particularly um, post-Brexit, uh, that would be interesting to know how India is doing as liberalization of services. So this related to that is uh, between 1600 year and the 1800, uh, India and China were the driving force of the international trade, that two-thirds of the trade in 1800, 1700, 1600 was driven almost for 200 years by India and China. India is going to be the fifth largest economy, I, I think, by the end of this year, uh, to, and taking over UK as the fifth largest. And by 2030, we're hoping that India will be the third largest economy in the world. So therefore, the issue of uh, as you said, looking at the inequality in the country uh, and expansion of global trade, um, how one would ne need some innovative thinking uh, uh, in India to see how that can be addressed. Thank, Thank you. you. And this lady just, just here at the front? And then we'll ask um, Minister to respond and okay. High Commissioner if they want to say uh, something. Linda Korsha. Um, presumably, if you were meeting with the Minister yesterday, there was some mention of a UK-India trade agreement, possibly. Um, the priority in a trade agreement for India seems to be mode four in GATS to move workers across borders, um, as it was in the EU-India negotiations, which went nowhere. And... Um, and the trade union and was opposed here by the trade unanimously by the trade union congress um, if if there is a talk of a uk india trade agreement would mode for moving workers across borders would that be uh, india's top priority once again and if so what categories would you be seeking for instance would you be seeking contractual service suppliers so that any indian company can send in workers to the uk Thank you very much. We'll have uh, another round in a moment, but uh, first let's give a chance to Minister Prabhu and High Commissioner to respond. Yeah, the first one is on the, on the food security. See, this is something which is, uh, I don't think this can be an issue on which there should be actually any dispute at all because what is the food security issue is that countries most this is really in most of the developing countries the government try to protect the farmer so they buy some produce farm produce from them and then there are issues related to malnutrition the issues related to hunger address that they ensure that through a public distribution system they actually distribute this food to the large number of people. This is what is 
the real genesis of the issue. Can anybody find any fault with this? There should be no reason why it should be any problem. I therefore, even in the WTO, we actually had decided way back in Bali, then in subsequently in Nairobi, in the previous two ministers, that will resolve the issue in Buenos Aires as the first issue. But unfortunately, it didn't get addressed. But this is what I mean by this issue. And I'm sure most of the countries agreed that this has to be done. So sometimes you, this is the politics, like we have also politics in climate change. So this is how we really need to look at it. Now, what Mr. Cowell wants to know is very interesting and also something similar you want to know. The two things. One is, of course, the services. And we see inevitably the services will be the major driving force for creating new opportunities. London is already a home to services, the biggest capital. Substantial GDP of UK also comes from here and comes from services. US, of course, has been a last service economy. India, almost two-thirds of India's GDP comes from services. And when we are talking about $5 trillion, I'm sure at least $3 trillion of that will come from services. So we obviously are working on uh, services agreement. We discussed that issue with our minister. So we are looking at it and we look at it. As you correctly said, India was one of the largest economy, the largest economy actually, till the Industrial Revolution. And that changed the thing entirely. And now we are on the threshold of the fourth Industrial Revolution. This is a good opportunity because revolution normally create new winners and hope not any losers, but I have the new winners definitely. So I think it's a great opportunity for everybody to take advantage of this. And this, again, could happen only when with partnerships, whether you call it trade agreements or not. Because what has happened is the global supply chains have emerged over a period of time. Global value chains are the new driving force for promoting global trade. And what it means is that nothing is happening everything in one single place. There'll be different elements of that will happen in different locations. And that provides an opportunity that even in the fourth industrial revolution, we could actually take advantage of these new emerging opportunities. That means that we need partnerships. How can you do that without that? So therefore, if you can work out the relative strengths and weaknesses of each of the economy, each of the country, and find out what is that I can do a better value addition and be a partner with somebody else who lacks that, then probably we can make better winners into this new idea. And that is what we are trying to do. We also decided to work with UK on finding out the new emerging industries and to also find out about that. Uh, as you said, on the India-UK FTA, we are actually trying to work on that. We are actually already working with EU to find out whether we can have a deal with them. So that's after some time, there's a lot of years gap. We are again talking to them. We invited them. They came. We had a very good meeting, but formal talks had to begin. With UK, we already have a working group to work on some of the issues related to that. So we'll have to wait for the formal outcome of the talk between EU and UK, and then let us see what happens in that, and then take a call again as to what is the result of that. But as you said, one of the important component of that is the movement of people. 
And in fact, can you think about a situation where you can deliver service without people? If you call somebody, of course, there's a possibility which will happen that you can fix your gadget at home by remote area. That is possible. It will happen, I'm sure, over a period of time. But can you think about telemedicine is a good idea? Not a bad idea at all. But still, I don't see a possibility wherein doctor will never see a patient at all. Is it something which is also possible? So we have to deliver a service. You have to be there closer to the person where the service is being offered to, delivered to. So therefore, the movement of people is something which comes if we want to promote services. Then we must also realize the characteristic of a service and how you deliver it. I so, of course, it's always possible that you can always do. I, I, I hope not, but one day it's possible. There could be marriage between a person, two persons living separately, and they never see each other, but they're married to each other. I don't know whether that will happen. Could happen. I don't know. But I think some physical meeting with the person who's providing service, and somebody's going to be the recipient of service, must happen. And that would necessarily mean that movement of people is also a necessity. There was one thing on, yes. the, on the US. He wants to say something. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to supplement what the minister said regarding your question on uh, movement of people. As far as the India-UK, a possible FTA or a trade agreement, whatever you call it, each country has its bucket list or wish list. And for us, freer movement of people is right up, up there. We understand that this may not be completely acceptable to our negotiating partners, but that any agreement has to be mutually beneficial, and we would need to negotiate uh, what we could do. For instance, and I give you examples of UK, the prohibitively high cost of visas for Indian nationals coming into the UK is not exactly a Commonwealth advantage, is it, when we are talking about reviving the Commonwealth. The post-study visa of four months... It's neither here nor there. I don't see employers employing people for four months. It doesn't really help. Uh, the tier two transfer, intercompany transfer, discourages professionals for coming in here in the IT sector and elsewhere. So while we understand that this has a resonance back here with professional bodies and trade unions, but after all, as the minister said, if you want services and services have to be provided, whether it's the NHS or whether it's the IT sector or whatever, you need people to come and go. I do agree that you need people to come and go when the services are over. So there are other ways of doing that. But by building walls is not the answer. So for us, in any trade negotiation with the EU or with the UK for that matter, this will be certainly a very important uh, on our wish list. No, I, I talked about professionals in general. I spoke about NHS. I spoke about students, and I spoke about IT professionals. Yeah, but would you be seeking, say, Sorry. Would you be seeking contractual service supplier access? Well, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see till the negotiations begin. Let 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 the negotiations begin. They haven't really begun. We have a joint working group that has met three times. Uh, just yesterday, in fact, the two ministers received the report of the joint trade review, one of the first trade reviews that UK has done with any country. So I think there are some very good signs, uh, very sort of positive signs emerging from the talks that the Honorable Ministers had with Secretary of State Fox. And we do hope that in the lead up to Chogaman and after, and especially after Brexit, uh, we will be, we'll have a relationship 
which will actually be at the next level. Thank you. Thank, thank you, um, High Commissioner and, and Minister Prabhu. Um, I just want to add from the Chair, if I may, how uh, important to many of us in the university sector the free movement of people is. Um, the, uh, and th this is uh, true of many universities, but of our own university, um, many of our, uh, in some departments, most of our really distinguished people are not from the UK, uh, from Europe, from India, from China, from everywhere. They come because we are good, and we are good because they come. Uh, that's true also of our students. Uh, we export educational services through the foreign students who come here, and they are enormously important to us in enriching our intellectual life. So it's very important that we have a grown-up discussion about um, uh, the impact of the movement of people. Um, I recommend to you a very nice recent piece, the latest edition of the Journal of Economic Literature, in the case of the United States, that looks very closely at that and shows um, that there will be some people who benefit very strongly from uh, immigration and people being able to move freely, and there'll be others who don't do so well. And it's very important that we look very carefully at that. But it is true, as you were both saying, you are more likely to be treated by an immigrant in the UK than be behind one in the queue for treatment. And it's very important that we understand that. It's very important that we understand how important overseas students are uh, to uh, our life in universities, not just our income, our life in universities. So I hope that uh, we can move beyond, as it were, the slogan side of discussing the movement of people to a much more detailed and close-up uh, discussion of this story. And I think universities have a crucial role, both as beneficiaries of this movement of people, but also in terms of analysis and trying to make this uh, a really evidence-based story. If I could just ask, the very first question was about United States in relation to India. Is there anything that um, exactly. you'd like to say? Okay. It's nothing to add. Okay. So if we could go around now, uh, three more. Is the gentleman with the horizontal stripes uh, there? And could, could you say who you are, please? Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I'm a student here. My name is Takshan Sashdev. I'm, I'm Indian. Could you be a bit uh, closer to the mic? Yes. Um, so from what we've heard, there seems to be two ways of dealing with the issues that we're facing. There's a multilateral way that we've seen stagnation at the WTO, but there's also bilateral agreements that are being worked on by all countries across the world. Do you think there are limitations to continue working bilaterally in the case of if we want more sustainable and inclusive growth? And do they outweigh the sort of challenges that we might and compromises that countries might have to make at the WTO should they pursue such policies on a multilateral level? Thank you so much. And, and uh, the gentleman just right the, down here at the front and then the lady over there. It, here it comes. And if you could give the second mic to the lady just here, please. 
Thanks. It's actually just, it's kind of building uh, on what the uh, gentleman back there just said. But tell me, tell us who you are, please. Sorry, my name's uh, Matthew Hunsby. I work for the Department for International Trade. Um, my question was, uh, going on from bilaterals, uh, what role do you think plurilateral regional agreements, like particularly the uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership and Trans-Pacific Partnership that are kind of being negotiated right now, um, India's kind of in negotiations for one but not the other, what role do you think those have in taking forward the sort of agenda that's stalled at the WTO? Thank you. And lady just here, please. Hi, my name is Kriti Manath. I'm a student of environment and development here. Um, like you mentioned, um, we need to change the whole paradigm and um, invest in more sustainable sources. Um, and the Indian government is obviously doing that by setting the whole 175 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2022. Um, and um, to achieve that target, obviously, we are trying to reduce tariff rates. But that 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 is, I, I find that that might not be sustainable or inclusive over the long term because it, it relies on cheap imports. So what, what can we do to um, encourage domestic manufacturing of, say, solar panels or renewable energy sources in general? You know, obviously, there is no bar from entering into bilateral agreement because you are a member of WTO. It's already happening. In fact, countries have been having pilot. When there was the WTO, there was still an after. When there was WTO, they, they negotiated the TPP. So obviously, there is something which is always possible that you can do bilaterally or even trilaterally or even plurilaterally. That is always possible. But question is, the advantage of having a trading system as transparent as this, which creates certain global trade issues, we first one single intervention creates a marketplace. Then anybody who is not following that, there is a dispute redressal mechanism, which is in fact one of the most key component of that entire edifice. And therefore, if you don't have that, bilateral agreement also you can provide for dispute redressal mechanism, which always happening, happening. And there have always been happening. People have been entering into TTs for a long, long time. But this is an instrument which creates a global trading platform with a type of safeguard that we are actually incorporating into this, which gives us an opportunity to promote international trade in a much better manner. So therefore, there is no bar. You can always have trilateral. In fact, while we are doing this, see, EU was also innovated a trading, trading system, common market. And that all the EU is also a member of WTO. Other members of so many bilateral agreements are also bilateral, enter into bilateral agreements or trilateral agreements or even more num partners, but still they are members of WTO. But WTO gives you an overall trading regime, if you can call it, uh, in terms of understanding how we should conduct the trade, etc., which is a completely different idea. So I think this could continue to work on bilateral and trilaterals, but WTO is a completely different institution which has been created. Like, for example, some countries question the United Nations itself. I mean, they say, why you need United Nations? You can always question for everything, why you need everything, why you need everything. But the role of these type of institutions, if we have a global community wants to live together harmoniously and benefit from each other, then we also need institutions. How can you just live like that? And therefore, we must therefore promote WTO. That's what I'm saying. 
so your argument is uh, domestic you should reduce tariff rates so that uh, cheap imports um, and uh, so must encourage domestic manufacturing so you are saying we should encourage domestic manufacturing and also reduce the trade you do both no see i'll tell you you know there is a very good argument in favor of reducing tariffs because tariffs in a way increases the cost so that's really no question about it the challenge that comes in is only when you are using unfair tactics and practices to dump something on the other country and therefore what you call it as the dumping has become a reality and then you distort the market so wto realized it also there is a rules specifically made out of that there is also as i said part of a dispute resolution mechanism is something to do with how do you actually deal with a situation that the anti dumping issues etc can be tackled with so if and that's the argument in favor of having wto more than bilateral agreement if you can come out over a predominant system wherein we can reduce the tariff but at the same time nobody can abuse the system or hoodwink the system as a result of that i'm not making any value judgment but i'm just telling you what us japan and also eu the three of them made a statement in binosaurus they different statement but somewhere there is some common probably point was that some countries are using wto to their own advantage they didn't name the country and i don't know which country they referring to so i'm not even talking about that but i'm saying so there could be some country which could be using this mechanism to reduce tariff to actually dump it so i think we should take and what happens is just imagine no country in the world can ever survive by saying that will not manufacture anything will have zero import let everything be coming from so so there one one or two countries will remain in the world which will only manufacture and they will send it to you something which is not actually a sustainable model so i think we must recognize the sovereign right of every country to decide their economic priorities to also understand that what suits them the most they must have a sustainable economy and therefore absence of manufacturing in our domestic markets and only surviving on import because we can reduce the tariff so it becomes cheaper is not a sustainable strategy either so we must have a proper trade off while we need to reduce tariffs we must also understand the domestic priorities we must encourage that to happen and ultimately end of the day you what is your strength of a country it is not just because you are the biggest importer of the world you are also must have some self sufficiency self reliance some strength that must come in so i think that choice and that decision making freedom we must leave it with that individual countries thank you um if we just have uh, one more round here the gentleman at the front just gentleman here please hello i'm ajay choudhury uh, i work in power so uh, maybe a related question can you uh, hold it uh, india is leading in uh, managing climate change and uh, trying to go for renewable energy etc but when you look at the growth which has been achieved by the west and this is or for that matter china in a very short period of time uh, in those days they don't or china in the nearer future didn't consider sustainability or didn't consider climate change and they went about and did growth very quickly in a very short period of time 
is India just putting a lot of constraints on themselves by leading climate change and by being more sustainable and maybe growth over a longer period of time? And uh, the gentleman in the beige jacket there, and then there's a the lady right at the very back. Yeah. Thank you. My name is Mark Griffiths, and I'm an investor and entrepreneur. Um, my question relates to something quite similar to the previous question, which is economics is all about making choices. And in some cases, that leads to dilemmas. And I was interested to understand how you make the choice between trade and investment that is detrimental to the environment. And lady right at the back, please. Hi, I'm Anukriti. Um, I'm a student at the LSE. Uh, my question is more towards the social part of sustainable development. So um, I want to ask, sir, is that in the growing urban inequalities arising due to global trade and investment benefiting only a limited population, do you think it would be beneficial for the Indian population if primary health care, education, and affordable housing is completely regulated and governed by the state itself? Let me, very interesting questions. I mean, I fully understand what you're saying. This was an argument which was that adherence to environmental and sustainability issues limits the growth. That is a presupposition on which you are, actually that question is best. But he will explain to you and there is now more than enough evidence available that it is exactly the opposite. People are thinking, even for corporates, that using sustainability will affect your bottom line. But those companies who are actually using this, their bottom line has improved. So same thing for a country as a whole. What I'm saying is, I'll give an example. The cost, particularly, this is the problem for a, because I'm talking about an Indian context only. India is a victim of climate change. India is not a cause of climate change. It's a victim of climate change because the per capita emissions are still the lowest. We never caused it. And the worst sufferer of climate change is the part of the world that where we live in, including the Himalayas, which is affected, and therefore that's a water tower of the world, we are suffering because of that. Now, therefore, obviously, our cost of adaptation is higher. So, we had done our research when I was the environment minister way back in 1998, and I'm just speaking on some memory. It was something like 4-5% of the GDP was the cost of adaptation. Now, just imagine if we don't follow a proper to be a good global citizen is one thing. That's what your argument is, probably why we should be good global citizen. Your other way to answer is why we should be good global citizen, right? But I think we should be good global citizen. At the same time, we should be also in the interest of India's own interest. We should make sure that we, we address climate change in a way that we don't have to, now, what the high cost that we have to pay for adaptation we have to pay. Now the question will be, of course that is a little different answer I'm giving, not directly related to this, but who should pay for adaptation? We accepted globally polluter to pay principle. Even Kyoto Protocol, we accepted that somebody has to pay for it. And again, the good part is that 
All those who caused it said, yes, yes, you're absolutely right. We have to pay for it. How many billions you want? So everybody was very excited. This is a fantastic idea. They're just asking for how many billions. So they, it was quantified. Something was done. But forget the billions. Not even a million could come into that. So now we have to find our own ways of dealing with this. And therefore, we must have a strategy to ensure that we do it. Now, the point that you are saying, what are we doing to do that? Say we are doing renewable energy. It makes commercial sense to make renewable energy. Because if you do renewable energy, actually you can have a distributed generation. In distributed generation, the huge infrastructure cost that you need to incur for creating transmission and sub-transmission network can be easily avoided. As you know, if you are in a conventional electricity system, if you invest one dollar or one pound into a generation, you have to have another one pound invested to sub-transmission and distribution, and transmission, obviously. So that is avoided. So if you have a distributed system, then you can take electricity to the place where it is necessary, can generate it there itself. So it makes commercial sense as well. So we are doing something as good global citizen. I hope it is recognized, the point you are asking me. And therefore, those who are supposed to pay for it also pay for it. Over a period of time, I sure hope. But then I was saying that after first, they were saying that priority was saving the planet. But then the 2008 happened. Then everybody said, more important is not save the planet, but save the banks. So everybody wanted to put money into the banks. So we forgot that this is a bigger bank, which you are forgetting, <laughs> which is going to promote you. So I think we hope that. But we have decided to take it as a part of a strategy. Maybe we could be more selfish, as you are saying. But we have decided to be good global citizen, as well as something which is actually helping us to work on that. Urban revival, housing, health, education is completely regulated by government. Should it be? So. What, what is your suggestion? Who's, I mean, I don't know what... It was a question. <laughs> no, no. So your suggestion is that there should be no regulation? No, that there should be. No, I, no, I know. No, I understand. But, you know, what I'm saying is, I fully understand you must remove the unnecessary regulation. That is, point is well taken. And that's what we are exactly trying to do. But if you don't have regulation, then next to LSE, they'll pick another tall building right on the road. So what will happen? How will you be able to enter it? So regulation is necessary, isn't it? So what is necessary is to remove unnecessarily unproductive, counterproductive regulation into this and make it as simple as possible. That's what exactly we are trying to do. Each of these areas, we are trying to come out with ease of doing business. I'm very happy to say that India's ranking, that's something which I handle as a minister in the government, India's ranking of ease of doing business has improved from 140 to 100. And you cannot improve unless you deal with each of these subjects as well. So what I'm saying is it's fully understandable. So probably what you want to know is to remove the unnecessary regulation, which is that's exactly what we are trying to do. But these sectors, like healthcare, has to be regulated because that's something we do to human life. You need regulation, even in education, to improve the quality standard. But unnecessary regulation, which are inhibiting the growth of that sector, should be removed. Um, I think now we should go to the, we only have five minutes left, and we should go to the last part, which is, were there any last things? Um, I, I will give you the last word, uh, Minister Prabhu, um, but 
YK, then myself, and then Suresh. Any, any last things you'd like to say? Um, no, thank you, Professor Stern, just to thank you and everybody uh, for this very useful and very interesting interaction. Um, I think we, as you mentioned, we, the High Commission, the India Houses across the road, and we have this 100-foot journey program, so we are preferred partner in most of the interactions is the LSE, um, and we're very happy about that. But I think on this subject, I think I really don't need to add to anything that uh, the Minister has already said, uh, except to thank you and to thank everybody uh, for making this possible. Thank you. Um, I just want to respond to the invitation um, that Mr. Prabhu gave to me on the story of growth and the story of uh, sustainability, the story of climate responsibility. Um, you don't uh, drive growth in the 21st century by looking to rely on the technologies of the 20th and the 19th century. The choices that have developed in the last 10, 15, 20 years have been quite remarkable, and they've come forth as a matter of policy, as a matter of emphasis. They've got a long way to run. We're probably only at the beginning of those things. But who would have thought 10 years ago that the cost of a solar panel would be less than one-tenth of what it was then? Who would have thought that most of the major car manufacturers would be making um, hybrid and uh, electric vehicles and they, that the heads of Ford and General Motors would be talking about the end of the era of the internal combustion engine? Who would have thought that the mayors of big cities would be saying no further um, fossil fuel cars in our cities after this date or that date? And in some cases that date is quite close. 2025. Who would have thought that India would say that no further um, cars uh, and vehicles powered by fossil fuels uh, would be sold after 2030? So this is quite extraordinary. Who would have thought that in India uh, 10 years ago, uh, the, um, those who are working closely on energy policy inside government and outside government now question the need for any further coal-fired power stations beyond those that are already uh, on the way. We're seeing absolutely remarkable change. We're seeing the ability to manage our cities uh, through digital, other techniques, soon, soon self-drive cars, in a fundamentally different way. Now, all these options come because of far-sighted people like Minister Prabhu who's looking ahead from policies that drive those things, those um, aspects of technological change. So we're now looking at sustainable and inclusive growth as the growth story of this century. Um, a lot of it through sustainable infrastructure. It boosts demand in the short run um, in a world which is largely demand-constrained rather than savings constraints. It sets forth the Schumpeterian uh, story of innovation, investment, and growth in the medium term. And in the longer term, of course, it's the only growth story on offer because high-carbon <coughs> growth is not a longer-term growth story. It creates an environment so hostile that it derails and reverses development. This is the growth story and one of the great breakthroughs in Paris in which India was a big leader was to recognize that this is not some kind of um, horse race between responsibility and sustainability on the one hand and growth and poverty reduction on the other. Quite the reverse, they come together. Now, and we have of course as a result cities where we can move and breathe and be productive and uh, we kill in this country 30 to 40,000 a year from air pollution. Of course, uh, millions killed in India from air pollution. And those are the kinds of benefits that come along with doing things in a different way. That's a very attractive, inclusive 
story. Of course, it's poor people who are hit earliest and hardest by pollution. So I think we can see things now uh, in a very different way than we did 10 or 15 years ago, and those options have come from policy. They've come from leadership, particularly of the kind that India is showing. And the UK is not good at everything, uh, but it has been quite good in this area in that uh, since 1990... Um, the economy uh, has uh, grown by uh, something like uh, two-thirds and emissions have been cut by something close to 40%. So I think India and the UK are actually good examples at this and it's wonderful to see India leading the charge. It's wonderful to see India leading the charge on internationalism and support for the WTO. Um, This is a century in which India is already leading very strongly and India is already performing very strongly. And those of us who spent much of our life working on and, India, on and in uh, India, in my case, for more than 40 years, it's absolutely inspirational to uh, see this leadership uh, in India. And uh, as they say in India, I think it is our duty in the UK to support and partner and come along with that story. We, we will be great beneficiaries from that in the UK.